Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody listening to the Independent Corner. This is your host, Jonathan Moody. And tonight I have uh, Chris Diane, uh the director of uh, the Creatures from the Pink Lagoon. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. No, no problem. Um, I, I pronounced that name right, right? Your last name right. Diani, you got it. Diani. All right, cool. So, all right. So, I guess I'm going to start off the easiest question, which I always ask my uh, callers, is, um, you know, how did you get uh, get into making low budget movies? Good question. I was actually um, I was a child actor back in Massachusetts where I grew up. I um, did mostly community theater, but also was cast in a few student films, which is what they used to call them back then, um, for, a, for a guy in my hometown who probably was you know, maybe 16 or 17. So he really was a student, and he was making these great little um, shoestring budget movies, um, mostly comedies. And, um, and I just I got a love for the craft just from being on the set and, and making films and, and, um, and seeing just the whole process. But I sort of... Um, put that love away for a little while because I just I didn't think it was attainable. You know, I was a child of the '80s and um, video cameras were big and clunky and VHS was was low quality at best. And um, I just didn't I didn't really have the resources to become a filmmaker. So I focused on theater, um, ultimately going behind the scenes and doing some stage managing and directing. And um, earlier this decade, just decided it was time to go to film school and and actually become a filmmaker oh cool so i so i guess uh how long did you go for a film school for all four years or no actually i went to a um it's a film trade school here in seattle it's called the seattle film institute and they have what's called the full immersion program which is a 40-week program where you go every day uh it's basically a full-time program and at the end of the 40 weeks you are a filmmaker or at least, <laughs> at least you can tell your mom and dad you're a filmmaker. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who went on to four-year programs from that, and I'd already been in um, a more traditional college program before I went to film school. So I definitely didn't have the patience to go back for four years. I wanted to do something a little quicker, and I wanted to stay in Seattle. Um, and, you know, it was a good choice. It was a good choice for me. Hmm. That's really cool. So... Um so you went off to do film school, and did you make a lot of shorts? And fe- you know, did you make any other features other than this one? Or this is my first feature. I did um, a a good handful of shorts while I was in school, and worked on a few shorts that other that my classmates were making. Although I I did become kind of notorious for walking off sets because I you know I'm just I'm a notor, right? I have to I have to be the director. I just can't do it. So. So, um, but I did make a few of my own short films, and then right out of film school, I got drafted by the Seattle Pride Committee here in Seattle to make a series of short promotional films for uh, the Seattle Gay Pride Festival in 2004. So that was my first professional gig, and it, and it was it was a blast because they basically um, gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted within the parameters of the project. Their um, their theme that year was Ice Cream Pride and they wanted me to create these shorts around that theme. So I ended up making um, five shorts that, uh, that sort of focused on different aspects of the gay community, like one of them was geared towards lesbians, one was geared towards um, gay men, one was geared towards bisexuals, one was geared towards bears, one was for drag queens. And um, they played locally in bars and at, uh, at different events, 
And one of them, the black and white uh, zombie pride, is actually an extra on the Creatures from the Pink Lagoon DVD. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I'll have to definitely check that out. I still have it from Netflix. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a great little short. It's definitely a precursor of Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, not only in that it's a black and white um, comedy about a zombie, but also because it stars the star of Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, Nick Garrison. Although he looks a lot different in Zombie Pride because he's in drag. He's basically playing the barber character from Night of the Living Dead. Oh, cool. cool. Except with an ice cream cone. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. Yeah, so so after I did the pride, uh, the pride shorts, I jumped right into making my first feature, which is Creatures from the Pink Lagoon. All right, so I guess we'll go right into the questions about that then. Um, sure. All right, so uh, how did you come up with the idea? How did I come up with the idea? It, it's a oh god, am I going to tell this story? It's pretty twisted, but basically what happened was. I had just gone through a pretty bad breakup. This was back in 2002. And and I was in Seattle at the time. And I decided to go spend the summer at my parents' house on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. So um, I was sitting up in my old bedroom watching movies. You know know, when you have a breakup, you watch movies that make you cry. You're sort of wallowing in the experience even as you want to get over it. Um, so I was watching all the all the sort of gay weepies like Love, Valor, Compassion, and Broken Hearts Club, and Boys in the Band, and um, and it was it struck me that these characters in these movies were um, were just they they just they were sort of ridiculous in how um, self obsessed they were and and how you know their their problems weren't all that terrible and and I just thought God these these characters are just ridiculous and and it sort of it helped me realize how ridiculous I was being holding up in my old bedroom and feeling sorry for myself, so I ended up joining a um a discussion group for gay and bisexual men in the South Shore area of Massachusetts. It was in plymouth and um and started going to their weekly meetings and befriending these guys and this was over the course of the summer and at one point there was this big um this big barbecue at the the home of one of the members of the club and it was on, it was at this little cottage on this little pond and it was just it was a fantastic little set like i i ended up telling the owner of the house i said god this would be a great place to shoot a zombie movie and he said okay and I said, really? And he said, yeah, let's do it. So I ended up writing this um, this script in three or four days, this little featurette script, um, and knowing that I didn't have really any resources or any um, professional actors at my disposal on Cape Cod, I ended up writing the roles for the other members of the men's group, and we shot a, a short, uh, not very professional version of what would ultimately become Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, uh, and I guess the idea came from sort of a combination of wanting to take those characters from the movies that I had been watching up in my bedroom and um, and putting them in peril, but putting them in sort of like, you know, in this, this great setting, which was this, this sort of deserted beach house in the middle of nowhere, um, which is a classic setting for a zombie movie or for a slasher movie. And, um, and I don't know, I guess I just put the two together and, and there was the idea. And what, what ended up happening to that original version of the movie was I came back to Seattle after the summer ended, and that's when I enrolled in film school. And I knew that the, I knew that the original version was just a goof and that it definitely wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, but I figured, well, I have all this raw footage and I can at least use it to, um, to practice editing while I'm in film school, if nothing else. But what ended up happening was my apartment was broken into 
uh, in January of the following year, and the only things that were taken were my laptop, which had some footage on it, and my camera bag, which didn't have my camera in it, but did have all the master tapes from the original version of the movie. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> it did suck. In one fell swoop, all that hard work was gone. And, and, you know, and at first I thought, God, is one of my classmates like trying to sabotage my career? But then I just realized that it, it, they were, I actually was home asleep at the time of the break-in. I was working the graveyard shift at the time, and it was at about 3 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I think that what happened was the criminals came in, saw that I was sleeping, and I can't believe that I slept through the break-in, but saw that I was sleeping in the bedroom and just grabbed whatever was easily grabbable, which was my laptop and my camera bag, and then just made a run for it. All right. Well, uh, we do have uh, some, uh, you know, listeners, I guess, because uh, the chat room is uh, getting full. Excellent. <laughs> you know, which is good. Uh, a lot of guests. Um, but um, one sp- uh, specific guest, um, LKD, uh, asked, um, well, she, they, they said they saw your uh, movie at, the, uh, at, at, a, at a film festival in San Diego. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. And uh, um, to ask you, do you always plan on doing films based on gay characters? That is a good question, LKD, and I think I know who LKD is. Um, yeah, you know, I at this point in my career, I do want to keep making films with gay characters. I think that um, there's this great new sort of subculture happening in the film community where um, gay films aren't just about being gay anymore. Like, you know, that was, that was sort of the first wave of gay films where it had to be about the coming out process or it had to be about what it was like to be gay. And then, of course, there was the subgenre of, um, of HIV and AIDS movies and what it was about to, to have that disease or to suffer through that. And now, you know, we've gotten past that and we can just make movies where the characters happen to be gay. And, you know, so gay genre films. And I'm really excited about the possibilities. You know, I love that, um, I love that there are horror films coming out now that, um, that have gay characters but aren't about the fact that those characters are gay. I love that, you know, there's a gay western. I love the, I love the very idea that um, we have all of these genres available to us that can be redefined because now we can populate them with gay characters. Hmm. Uh, yeah, look at David Dakota. He's been making his career. Exactly. Although, although uh, quite a few of his films, you know, it's questionable whether they're gay or if he's just, you know, if he's just uh, sitting on the fence. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess a lot of the ones where the people are just uh, shirtless. You know, yeah, I mean, no they certainly take their clothes off a lot more than the straight guy I know. But you know, they never come out and actually say I'm gay. And there's no, there's no real man-on-man action in a lot of his films. But... Well, I would say The Brotherhood, though. If you've ever seen that movie, have you seen that? I have. Yes. Uh, the Brotherhood, uh, I would say that that movie is very, uh, his first of the, you know, um, because when when he changes him to a vampire, it's very sexual, you know, so, yeah, I mean. Yeah, and and David actually directed one of the, the most beloved independent gay films. He directed Leather Jacket Love Story, which, you know, it was, it's not part of what people consider his oeuvre because, you know, he mostly does Supernatural but, um, but yeah, I mean, Leather Jacket Love Story is one of those films that people love, and, and he directed that. So he okay. definitely knows how to make a good gay genre film, for sure. Interesting, you know, genre film. Of all, you know, um, I would also say that uh, maybe that should be one of your next ones, uh, a gay vampire movie. You know, it's funny because a lot of people have been asking um, for a sequel to Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, 
And um, that's, that's one of the ideas that I've sort of been tossing around is that if I do make a sequel, I don't want to just retread the whole zombie thing again. I do want to go somewhere else. So I was thinking I would set it in the 70s and um, that I would make it about gay vampires this time instead of gay zombies. <laughs> that could be pretty cool. Yeah, although there, there are a couple of gay vampire movies out there. There's um, Scab, which came out. It was on the festival circuit at the same time as Preachers from the Pink Lagoon was playing. And um, and there's one, gosh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was uh, set at a, a sort of bar slash nightclub, and the religious right has teamed up with vampires to um, to wipe out the gays. I guess it's it's sort of a weird one, but that one was playing around the same time as uh, as Creatures as well. Oh, cool. Um, all right. Also, Al Katie asks about um, a lesbians. Uh, what about lesbians in your films? Yeah, the um, so the lesbian horror fans out there have definitely hit me hard for not having. Well, I do. There are a few women in Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, but they're pretty incidental to the plot. They um, they're they weren't know, they're really very, lesbians. They were uh, and they weren't lesbians. They were they were just they were um, they were just gossipy women. But um, I I've taken that criticism to heart, and I am planning on including lesbians in my next film. So oh, okay, so LKD can rest assured that the women will definitely be represented. All right, definitely. All right, so let's. Uh, I guess um, the other another question I've got for you is, uh, you know, how how did uh, how long did it take you to write it? To write the well, book? the the initial the initial screenplay, the one that I shot with friends back in Massachusetts in two thousand two, took about three or four days. I mean, I just I, and and it was definitely a short version. It was probably about twenty to twenty five pages long. Um, so pretty but, much like ten pages a day. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quick. It was quick and easy because it was just it was so goofy, and you know there were no expectations whatsoever. But um, when I decided after the after the original footage was stolen, and I decided to remake the film, um, gosh, it probably took I I wrote another draft over the next few months. Like probably it took two or three months to to write a feature length draft, and then I brought in Basil Harris, who's my co writer. And um, and basically said, listen, I need your help. We need to flesh out some of these characters. We need to um, bulk up some of these scenes. And and by all means, we need to make it funnier. Because you know I'm a funny guy, but Basil is a um, he's a an ex sketch comedian. He's a great writer. He's a brilliantly funny guy. So um, so I brought him in to just to make it funnier and to to snap up the dialogue. And and he did a great job. Um, and working with him was great because it motivated me. Like every every week when we got together, we knew that the goal was to write you know X number of scenes. So um, you know if people's ego can handle it, I absolutely recommend having a writing partner because it really does get the work done that much faster. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we um, we workshopped the we Basil and I came up with a, a draft of the script together, and then workshopped it with the cast. So this was after we actually did casting, and um, and had invited some some trusted friends, some people that we'd worked with in the past, and um, you know zombie fans, and just people who we um, wanted to elicit opinions from on the draft that we were presenting. And based on their feedback, we went back and did one final draft, which probably took. About another month, month and a half before we started shooting. Hmm. And um, you know, I noticed when I was watching the movie that a lot of the script was, uh, you know, it, it seemed to parody a lot of the, um, you know, stereotypes that you see. Oh, absolutely. In, you know, 
It, it looked like a, um, and it looked like, a, I think a lot of people have mentioned it, it looked like a parody of uh, soap operas and stuff because <laughs> it had certain characters that were very, you know, like had this certain people that you could see, you know, like I, I don't really know how to describe it, but when you see it, you know, it's very, you know, it's not a cliche movie, but it parodies like cliche type stuff, you know. Absolutely. That was the idea. We took... We took what's basically the, um, the stock characters from a gay film. Um, so we had the sissy, we had the nerd, we had the sassy black queen, we had the bitter old, guy, the old queen, we had the promiscuous guy, we had the muscle hunk, uh, we had the cheating boyfriend. We basically took all of these stock stereotype characters and you know, we, we, we turned them on their ear because we put them in a horror movie. And of course, in a horror movie, those are, um, you'd never have all those characters together, right? You'd usually right. have just one of those characters in a horror movie, and invariably that would be the first character to get killed. So, um, you know, in our own subversive way, we, we, we took the characters that would be least likely to survive in a mainstream horror film, and we made them the heroes of the film, which are the, you know, the sassy black queen, the sissy, and the nerd. <laughs> Definitely the people that you wouldn't expect, right? Yeah, the, the ones who probably have the least chance of survival in, you know, a Friday the 13th are the ones who end up saving the day in Creatures from the Pink Lagoon. So, yeah, we definitely consciously took those stereotypes and poked fun at them. And we were poking fun at the, um, at the, the idea of, um, you know, the, we, we poked fun at the stereotypes that exist in horror films as well. You know, the, um, the onslaught of the zombies where they stop to dance. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, we're poking fun at Thriller as well as Night of the Living Dead. Um, the fact that the only thing that can stop the zombies is cheap cologne. Uh, you know, just, we, we took a lot of the conventions of both the gay and the horror genres and, and tweaked them a little bit to make them funny and, and just to make them suit our, our plot. All right. Well, we we do have a caller, and it seems to be somebody from your uh, area. So excellent. Hold on one second. Uh, caller, hello. Hi. 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 My name is Lisa, and I'm a big fan of Chris's films. I've seen a lot of his work in the um, the Stiff Festival. I was wondering if you'd be participating in it coming up this next year. I think it's called the Weekend Film Challenge. <laughs> well, hello, Lisa, and thanks for your question. Um, the, okay, so Lisa's asking about STIFF, which is the Seattle True Independent Film Festival. It's a festival that started four years ago. Um, it's, it's sort of Seattle's answer to slam dance. We have a major international film festival here in town called SIF, the Seattle International Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And the creators of STIFF were very frustrated because um, they weren't seeing enough representation of local independent films in SIF. So, and in particular, their local independent film, Swamper, which they had made and, and had been rejected by the, I think, 2004 Seattle International Film Festival. So, um, so basically, you know, it's the story that you hear often, which is disgruntled filmmakers decide to uh, take lemons and make lemonade. So they created their own festival. And um, each year, 2004, no, let me think about this. 2005, 2006, and 2007, I've participated in their, their sort of in-house um, 48-hour film challenge, which they call the Weekend Film Challenge. Uh, so I've made a short film in each of those challenges, three years in a row. And, um, and unfortunately, and I, this, I just, just told the guys at Stiff this weekend, so it's not a secret, but I'm not participating in, in the Stiff Weekend Film Challenge this year um, because I'm, I'm, just, I'm focusing on my next screenplay. But in years past, it's been a fantastic adventure. We, um, 
uh, my film filmmaking team and I were able to make a uh, six-minute western uh, sci-fi, uh, like a, a, an aliens versus humans sci-fi extravaganza. And in 2006, we made a political horror film in which a chihuahua is killed with a staple gun. <laughs> that <laughs> that, that sounds kind of fun. <laughs> Yeah, that that one actually won an audience award. That was a, that was a really great experience. We had a blast doing that one. That one's called Rabbit's Foot. And in fact, the caller Lisa appears in Rabbit's Foot. Oh, you blew my cover. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And and I have to mention that um, Lisa and her husband Harold also were very gracious to allow us to use <laughs> their home during the shooting of Creatures from the Pink Lagoon. So um, particularly in the drawing of the swizzle stick scene you're looking at Lisa and Harold's master bedroom when, uh, when you watch <laughs> that scene. Master bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have that other little room. <laughs> uh, well, we have, a, we have a lot of uh, guests in the chat room. And, Excellent. Um, it's, it seems like some really cool people are listening to the show that uh, seem to be from uh, different companies and stuff. So I guess you've got people checking, uh, checking up on you or something you know, going on. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It was weird because I just saw Amblin Entertainment is checking us out. Hey, that's 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 Steven Spielberg's company. So, do you know anybody over there? I don't yet, but tell Steven to have his people call my people. I'd be glad to talk to him. (laughs) I don't know. It's just really really weird to see that pop up and everything. So it's kind of cool. I've never had uh, them listen to my show at all. So, Uh, but uh, yeah. So anyway, I just want to mention that so you could kind of be a little. I don't know, happy, I guess, about awesome. that. Yeah, that makes me very happy. Z- gay zombies for the win. Yeah. Um, Lisa, were you a f- were you a fan of uh, when you know when you were watching? Did you watch it get made and everything? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So were you? Um, uh, I, didn't did get, you... I didn't get to watch too much of it because I was working a lot of the time. But I was there for for at least one of the days that they were there. That's really cool. Yeah, it was did interesting. You no, know it was going to be as big as I guess it is right now. Um, I really didn't know what to expect. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you really never do. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lisa, for calling in. And uh, Sure, thanks for taking my call. Uh, no problem. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Bye. Bye. All right, that was really cool. Yeah, um, the Creatures has has, um, has just blown away everyone's expectations, mine included. You know, we, we've played in over 30 cities around the world. It's, it has a successful DVD release. We're talking... Um, with a company about our cable premiere later this year. We're talking with um, companies in various countries about foreign DVD releases and foreign cable deals. So it, it's just, it blows our minds that you know, it's, it's as successful as it is. Okay. Um, well, you do have a friend from a longtime fan from Cape Cod oh. in that room. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, go right ahead. Um, yeah, his name is uh, T. Martone. T. Martone, excellent. Uh, you know him, I guess? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there you go. So if he wants to ask a question, he can ask it in the chat room, and I'll uh, definitely answer. Or anybody who wants to call in and ask a question, they can uh, feel free to call in right now at one six four six nine one five eight six nine three. So, uh, yeah, Call definitely. in, don't be afraid. Yeah, uh, just like Lisa. So, um, anyway, so I guess let's get back to um, the questions I had, like, um, so I, I asked you earlier in the pre-interview about this, but uh, you know, I guess you can talk a little bit about your budget. Absolutely. Um, the official 
number that we use is that the budget was under 100000 and um, And you and I talked about how it's a, a number that a lot of ultra-low budget filmmakers feel comfortable revealing. And, and you know, that's smart. That's definitely career preservation because you don't, you don't, want to, um, you don't want to sell yourself short. You don't want to make people think that you, um, you've spent no money on your film. And more importantly, you want people to look at the film for what it is, not for what you spent. You know, so a lot of times that number can be deceiving. And, and you and I were talking about how there's a difference between um, cash expenditures, which was certainly one budget that we had, and the ultimate cost of the film, which includes deferred salaries, which includes um, uh, music licenses that we have to purchase, which includes all, just all kinds of expenses, um, you know, post-production sound, all sorts of things that, um, that ultimately get paid for but aren't necessarily in the initial budget that you're, um, that you're spending day-to-day. So, yeah, under 100000 is a really good... Um, is a really good number to use. And it's funny because, you know, uh, there's, there are quite a few filmmakers who earlier in their careers played the, I can make a film for this much, and it was, you know, they, it almost seemed like they were in a pissing match to see who could make a film for the cheapest amount of money. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking of Robert Rodriguez and his famous Making El Mariachi for $7,000 story, or, um, or Kevin Smith saying that he only spent 23000 on Clerks. And I'm thinking, you know, it, it's great if, people latch onto that story and, and see it as a, a badge of merit. But I don't, I don't think I want to be in that club. You know, I don't want to be in the cheap filmmaker club. I definitely want my budgets to, um, to increase as my career grows. And, uh, and I, you know, I want, I want people to be looking at my film for, um, for the performances and for the production value and for a lot of other reasons besides how cheap I made it, cheaply I made it. So... Um, all right, so uh, T. Martone did have a couple questions. So. Excellent. Uh, well, he asked one question. Um, I'm sure you'll be able to answer easily, but uh, will the film be in release in Phoenix anytime soon? <laughs> uh, not theatrically, but it's available on DVD in the U.S. and Canada, so T. Martone can purchase it at uh, fine purveyors of DVDs like uh, Amazon.com or TLA Video or he can add it to his Netflix queue, or he can rent it via Blockbuster Online. Hmm, cool. All right. Um, and then he also asked, uh, why, why, wasn't I, why wasn't he cast in the film? Disappointing. Why, indeed. Uh, I, I, something tells me that it was logistics more than anything else. I don't think he was on Cape Cod during the shooting of the film, uh, the original film, and he certainly wasn't in Seattle when I, when I made the, uh, the version that's on DVD. So next time. For Next sure. Time. All right, and uh, he, you know, uh, well, I guess uh, he asked, how can he support you in your filmmaking? And uh, uh, he wants to see what all the hype's about. <laughs> and well, like you I said, just, he can, uh, he I guess, answer this question. Yeah, he can definitely read the DVD, and and uh, and all all questions will be answered. Yeah, definitely. Rent, uh, check them out, buy it, uh, or uh, you could rent it on Netflix or anything like that. That's how I got it. So. Um, oh, he said, uh, you mean you're not sending him a friend copy? <laughs> no. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> that, so, so you that, would definitely, that, that would increase our budget if we, if we sent a copy to every friend who asked for one. Oh, yeah, definitely. So you'd have to, you, that would come out of your pocket, too, probably not exactly. the actual budget of the film, so. Yeah. Um, but anyway, all right, so, um, I guess there's a fan right there for you. Uh, well. It sounds like a conditional fan, but 
Tell them Netflix is free. All you have to do is pay your monthly uh, monthly fee, and you can get as many DVDs as you want. Yeah, definitely the uh, Netflix way. Um, so how uh, how many days did it take you to shoot it? We had a really unconventional shooting schedule. Um, I'm you know I have a full time job in addition to being a filmmaker, and pretty much all of my cast and crew also have day jobs. So what we did was we shot over weekends, and our initial shoot started on Labor Day weekend of 2004. We shot for 17 days in 2004, or just weekend days, and then um, assembled a rough cut over the next few months and realized that we definitely wanted to do some reshooting. There were some effects that didn't work quite as as well as we expected them to in the in the uh, in the first shoot, and also there was just some there was some footage that we just didn't get. Either um, the coverage of a particular scene wasn't good enough, or um, that was pretty much it. I mean, basically, we just we didn't have enough to assemble the entire film. So we went back an, an entire year later, so uh, Labor Day weekend of 2005, and we shot eight additional days, also over weekends. Mm-hmm. So 25 days total for the shoot. Wow. Yeah. That's well, you know, at least you got all it done, you know, and it's it was only what about um it was only about sixty something minutes, like sixty five minutes, like it's uh, it's yeah, it's seventy one minutes. It's it's uh, definitely a short feature. But, but yeah, uh, but it it goes back to the you know the B movies of the fifties and everything when everything was that short. Absolutely, right? and I'm and I'm also a big fan. There's a there's a gay French filmmaker named Francois Ozon. Who um, who makes films of all varying lengths? You know, he's got one film that's 23 minutes, one that's 40, one that's 120, and he's he's really distinct in that he will not make a film longer or shorter than it needs to be. And I really felt that way about Creatures. We could we could have certainly padded it and made it a 90 minute film, but I thought, you know, let's get in there, let's make it quick and easy, quick and dirty, and get out. And and I think that we benefit from that. You know, I think that we don't push it, we don't. Um, we don't overstay our welcome. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it, it's, it's not a real um, hard commitment to make. You know, you can sit down and watch a 71-minute film, and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and, that's, and that's a good rule for comedy as well. You know, just make it quick and keep them laughing and get out fast. So, Definitely. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. So, um, all right. So, uh, well, I guess uh, I guess I uh, asked this kind of, but are you a big fan of the fifties uh, like B movies? And I am a huge fan. I grew up watching. I grew up in uh, well in the central Massachusetts area, and um, every Friday night or Saturday watched Creature Double Feature on Channel Fifty Six, and um, loved you know just a, a lot of the monster movies, a lot of the B movies. I loved The Blob. I loved um, the Giant Gila Monster. I loved. Um, you know, all the Godzilla movies and, and uh, a lot of the Hammer films. Just, yeah, I was a huge fan when I was growing up and watching movies on cable. And then in the 80s, when, um, when the VHS revolution hit, then um, watched, God, all of those movies, all the slasher films, um, you know, the Friday the 13th, the Halloweens, the, um, the Night of the Living Dead, and all the George Romero films, watched um, Evil Dead and its sequels, you know, just all of those um, great films, both the original black and white B films and then um, some of the great 80s horror films as well. So big, big fan of the genre for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really cool. Um, okay, well, we do have somebody uh, named Boopsy 
in the uh, chat room that asks, says, this is a very serious question. You've got okay. hunks, you've got zombies, you've got hunky zombies, but Mr. Diani, uh, remember, uh, re- re- answer me this. Are there any tits in the movie? <laughs> there, uh, there are, there's no female nudity in the film itself, but if you purchase the DVD, there is a particular featurette on it called Scene 78, and it's what we consider the lost scene, and it features a topless woman getting splattered by zombie, well, getting splattered by chocolate sauce, actually, but because it's black and white, it looks like she's getting splattered by blood. <laughs> So, okay, so if they want the nudity, they have to watch you the special features. You've got to get the DVD, absolutely. Watch the special features, in particular, Scene 78. And it's, uh, the actress in, the, in, the, uh, in that um, featurette is Jodie James. She actually has a role in the film. She's the sister of uh, Sebastian Camembert, who's the, um, the character whose funeral we're attending at the beginning of the film. And um, she, she's an actress friend of mine, and, and when I asked her if she wanted to play a small role in the film... She said, yes, but only if I get to take my top off. And I thought, well, it's going to be hard to work female nudity into my gay zombie film. But um, one day we were on the set, and we were at, we were, she was helping with makeup as well. And we were at this park, and for some reason the, in, um, when we were printing the shooting script, one of the scene numbers got skipped. So we had a scene 77, and then we had a scene 79. And for some reason, scene 78 was just not there. So we started joking that that was going to be Jody's topless scene, and when we were at the park that day, she said, why don't we shoot it? Why don't we do a topless scene? So sure enough, we, um, we got her topless, we squirted chocolate sauce all over her, and the results can be seen on the DVD. I will definitely have to check that out now. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, interest. A, it's a great featurette, and Jody looks fantastic, and she does a great job. And, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to squirt her with chocolate sauce, I have to admit. <laughs> Um, so that's that's pretty cool. So, um, well, uh, T. Martone did ask a couple other questions and uh, said, "Did you uh, did you want to thank him for uh, the inspiration for the movie?" <laughs> Which part, the gay part or the zombie part? <laughs> I'm not I'm not quite sure. I know where where he's uh, thinking. I got inspiration from him, but uh, but no. <laughs> okay, I think you might have been because he was talking earlier about that. He's he, he he was wondering how do you, did you remember the creature double feature on channel 56 so how could i not remember that i watched it every weekend i remember um i had older uncles when i was growing up and they were in high school when i was a little kid and um we used to sleep over at my grandmother's house when we were young and my sister and i were terrified because we were uh, on friday nights we'd watch creature double feature and then we'd fall asleep and our uncles would you know throw blankets on or put on horror masks and try and scare us okay. so yeah it's it's definitely burned into my memory. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, all right. So, anyway, well, let's uh, let's go on to the next question. So, um, sure. Uh, what are what are you what do you think your influences are? <sighs> well, for this movie in particular, um, there's there's two really clear influences, which are Night of the Living Dead and. Um, a movie called Boys in the Band, which came out in 1970. It's, um, it was written by Mark Crowley and directed by William Friedkin, who later went on to do The Exorcist and a bunch of other films. And um, Boys in the Band is, is sort of this time capsule. It was based on Mark Crowley's play, which came out in 1968, 
and it was about this group of self-loathing gay men who have a birthday party and sort of rip each other to shreds, and um, metaphorically rip each other to shreds. And then um, the Stonewall Rebellion happened in, in 1969, where the um, where the drag queens and, and gay men at the Stonewall Bar in New York rioted um, on the eve of Judy Garland's funeral. And in 1970, in um, in a film that already felt kind of dated because you know it was based on um, on the source that came from before Stonewall, the film came out, and it was. Um, it was really, it's really interesting to watch now because you do have those stereotypical characters, but they're being presented in a way that's not ironic and is not, um, not comedic at all. I mean, they're, they're, in, our, um, in our day and age, they're, they're seen more as pitiful characters. You know, they're these gay men who hate themselves and who feel trapped in their identities and don't know what to do. And, and you know, you've got this, um, this one character who sort of lashes out at the most effeminate character and... Um, so, yeah, so there was definitely a lot of inspiration coming from Boys in the Band in that I took those characters and, um, you know, and, and cer- certainly placed them in a more ironic atmosphere and, you know, and then took the, uh, the iconic Night of the Living Dead and, uh, and created my own zombie attack. Uh, cool. Well, LKD did ask a good question, and they ask, uh, is it, are you gay yourself? I am gay. Yes, okay. indeed. Just and we were well. When we were talking about this, you asked me before the show um, if the product, if the whole cast and crew was gay or not. Right. And and you know it, it's funny because I I didn't think of it regularly, but every once in a while it would become clear that there was definitely about a fifty fifty split. And um, and, you know you you'd mostly that would mostly become evident when there were sort of the, the kissing scenes where you had straight actors kissing gay actors or straight actors kissing straight actors and, and you'd have to sort of instruct them on, okay, so this is, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, we have um, one of our straight actors talking in one of the featurettes on the, on the DVD about how surprised he was that um, Stubble was so chafing. Like he didn't realize that that was going to happen. And because um, he had, he had, he actually, that's um, John Kaufman who plays Gary in the film. And he, I think got the most action of all the actors in the film and he's a straight boy. So, but yeah, the, the, the casting crew was about a 50, 50 split gay and straight. And, um, and it was, it was one of the gayer film sets I've been on for sure. As a matter of fact, we had a 17 year old production assistant who blogged about it later and talked about how it, it felt like he was in Wonderland because he went on the set and it was just like everything was just so open and so gay and so awesome. And, and I'm pretty proud of that. I'm pretty proud that I gave a 17-year-old that experience, that he, um, you know, he, he felt the possibility of, uh, of being gay and being in the film industry so early in his life. So. Wow, that's really cool, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So... Let's. Uh, I, I also was wondering: Is the the one guy who's supposed to play straight was he gay himself? The, the one, one who was guy. supposed to be straight at first, and then. Oh, uh, Joseph. Yeah. The nerd character. Yeah, the nerdy character. That is Evan Mosier, and he is straight. He's actually a straight man. He um, he doesn't act as much anymore because in a, he's in a great local band called Awesome. Um, he and, and actually my co-writer, Basil Harris, are in the band together. So he doesn't do as much acting anymore, but he's fantastic. I actually first saw him in, um, in some performances by the, the now-defunct local sketch comedy troupe, Bald Face Lie, 
and just thought he was brilliant and thought he was really um, he just he had he had a quality that I really wanted for Joseph, sort of that um, that nerdy but still adorable quality. So um, so he did a great job, and yeah, he's actually a straight boy, and he got to make out with uh, with Nick, who he's actually very good friends with in the uh, the final scene. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I just, yeah, I was wondering that because I thought that was really kind of funny that I guess he was, he's supposed to play straight and then later, you know, of course, don't want to say anything, but, you know, that's okay. You can, you can definitely reveal that. And, you know, it's funny because we, when Basil and I were writing that character, we weren't necessarily thinking of him so much as straight as just really, um, shy and uptight. Like, it wasn't so much that he wasn't out of the closet, it's just that he couldn't fathom the idea that he would be open about that. Um, so, you know, ultimately he does come out in his own way. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's, it's a voyage that I really appreciated watching Evan take because I think that he added so much to the character um, that maybe wasn't on the page. So he did a great job, and, and you know, all the actors are fantastic. That's really cool. So... All right, so um, then my next question. Um, uh, all right, so I have, uh, we we kind of touched on this a little bit, but not too much. The uh, Judy Garland situation. Yes. You use uh, her song, uh, you know, wh- one of her songs in the the movie, pretty much a good amount of through. So I was wondering. How did you obtain the rights to the, the song? <laughs> well, in, in the pre-interview, you asked me how I got away with it. Yeah, I thought I thought I thought you had actually just put it up there, and then you know, you didn't actually have the rights to it. But I no, we, we definitely acquired the rights, and and I I talked about it earlier with you. But yeah, it's it's a topic that a lot of independent filmmakers don't realize is as complicated as it is. Um, acquiring the music rights or getting the clearance to use music for your film is so hard and I can't I can't tell you enough how difficult and how difficult it is and how many times we were forced to reconsider whether Judy Garland was really essential to the film or not. And of course the answer is yes. I mean that she's like the ultimate punchline and you you really have to you can't you can't make that scene or that denouement work with anyone else. So it really had to be Judy Garland, which is why we did end up putting so much work and effort into acquiring the rights. But it's a really, really tough bit of business where you basically, first you have to find out who owns the rights. And the problem is, is that when you're, when you're acquiring rights to a recording of a song, you have two sets of rights that you need to acquire. There's the master recording rights, which is the actual recording itself that you're acquiring. And then there's also the rights to the words of music. And those aren't necessarily held by the same people. And in the case of, of Zing Went the Strings of My Heart, which is the Judy Garland song that we use in Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, they are most definitely not held by the same people. And it took, God, it, took, it felt like it took over a year just to get to the point where we found out that the people that we thought might own the rights didn't own the rights. So ultimately what we were forced to do was hire someone who specializes in clearance. And, um, and she worked on our behalf to, to get the permission to use Judy Garland. And it took her forever, too, because basically what happens is these, these rights holders prioritize based on how much money they're going to get from people. And so when they hear that it's an ultra-low budget film and that basically the only, you know, we can only afford a few thousand dollars, they put us on the bottom of the pile. And we, you know, it, it just it takes forever. It takes forever. 
And, um, and the other thing is, is that we actually ended up negotiating a really low rate with the people who owned the, well, I don't, now I can't remember which one it was, but one set of rights were owned by someone who, who basically got it. You know, they knew that it was a low-budget film. They knew that it was a labor of love, and they were basically going to let us have the rights for, uh, I think, 1500 But the problem is, is that you, um, you're forced to do what's called a most favored nations deal, where if the other side, the people who own the other half of the rights, decide that they want more, then the people who initially said that they would take a lower amount are now bumped up to the higher amount so, because basically they both have to get the same amount. So like I said, it's so complicated, and we ended up having to pay a lot of money to secure the rights. And then what happens is you, um, you have to negotiate the different types of rights that you're asking for. So we paid a particular amount for the um, film festival and home video rights, and then um, if we wanted to screen the film theatrically, it would be an additional amount. And then, um, and it gets even more complicated because what happens is then the rights holders can dictate how many theaters you can play in and what types of theaters. So even though we didn't exercise this option, the theatrical option um, was limited to 100 theaters or less and only art house theaters. And then you have to negotiate your your um, your cable deal. So basically, it's very very complicated. And it, it I, I, I basically I have two recommendations based on my experience acquiring the rights to Zing with the Strings of My Heart. The first recommendation is get somebody to create original music for your film. That's going to be the easiest way. You know, get, um, sign a music agreement with this person where either you pay them up front or you know, just figure out a way to make it cheap and easy for yourself because it's a headache if you go any other way. But the second way to do it is to, um, to basically hire someone whose specialty is music clearance, because it is too difficult to navigate on your own as an independent film producer or film director. It's just, I'm telling you from experience that you don't want to do it yourself. All right. Well, uh, yeah, uh, actually, uh, uh, LKD asked, uh, did you know all this stuff ahead of time, or did you figure it out the hard way? And I'm guessing you figured it out the hard way. (laughs) Uh, pretty much. I mean, we we knew that we would have to. You know, we definitely knew that we would have to pay people to use the Judy Garland song, but we thought it would be a easy to find those people and b easy to just cut a check and get the rights. And you know, it's been anything but. So yeah, we definitely learned our lesson the hard way. And and you know, I I wasn't completely naive going into it because we did talk about this in film school, and then. Um, uh, I took a I took Dove Simmons' uh, two-day film class, and he talked about it a lot too. So I wasn't caught unaware. I just had no clue exactly how complicated it would be. So, so, so my my word of advice to all you independent filmmakers out there is, don't do it if you can at all avoid it. Uh, getting musical rights for using using published music. Yeah, if you're and even if you use published music. Um, it's it's probably easier to get the rights to the words of music and then record your own version than try and get both the rights to the words of music and the master recording. Yep. Well, uh, T. Martone had to has to head out, but he just wanted uh, before uh, before he he leaves uh, to listen to the show. He said uh, that he hit you up soon and uh, uh, that he's glad to hear that things are plugging along. So excellent. Well. I guess he's going to hit me up for a free DVD, a role in my next movie, and for 
I don't know, um, a special thanks in my Oscar acceptance speech. <laughs> it sounds like he'll be satisfied with nothing less. Yeah, exactly. No, he's. Uh, I guess he'll just talk to you later or whatever. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that works. I I, I know who T. Martone is. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so let's. Um, I guess the other thing. Uh, also, makeup effects. Oh sure. Let's talk about makeup. Um, the person who did our zombie makeup is Emily A. Bullard. She is an award-winning makeup um, makeup designer, and um, and she basically she is a workhorse. She came in every morning, uh, you know, at the crack of dawn, and slathered makeup on all of these zombies. She um, Jody James helped her, but um, but Emily did all of the all of the intricate makeup work. So you know, we have people helping with the initial coat, and we used green makeup even though it's a black and white film because it just it gave the actors more of that zombie pallor. Than, um, than just flesh tone would. So we used this sort of alien green makeup. And then um, Emily would apply latex in, um, you know, in various places based on where the wounds were going to be for each zombie. Um, and and it, you know, the initial latex is this bright white stuff. So then she'd have to do detail work where she would paint it and you know, put um, blood on it and then rip the, rip the latex open so that it looked like a skin flap or looked like a wound. And um, she did an amazing job. And then in terms of effects, we had Brian Kent Cooper, who is a member of the cast and also just a great technical director from my theater days. Um, he helped us with, oh, just a bunch of the effects. He's the one who created the fake arm that, um, that we use when Randall's hand gets bitten off. And um, he helped us with the effect where um, the first zombie's hand comes through the grave and, uh, in the, early in the film. And, uh, yeah, so, so the effects were, it was, it was sort of a group effort, but we definitely had a few people leading the way, and that was Emily and Brian, and, uh, and definitely some really able assisting, assistance from Jody as well. All right, well, uh, somebody who um, is named uh, Squishy Cat uh, asked her a question. <laughs> uh, what was the permitting process like when you were doing the location shooting? Permitting was actually really easy. It, it um, I can't speak highly enough about the Seattle Mayor's Film Office because they make, it, they make it easy for independent filmmakers to use Seattle locations. Basically, they have what's called a low-impact permit process where if you're, um, if you're shooting with, I can't remember what their cutoff is, but a particular number of crew members or less, and if you don't need to block off roads, and if you don't, need, if you don't have um, large production vehicles, and you don't need to tie off um, city electricity, then they, um, they charge you just one very low fee for the duration of your shoot. And I, and I swear, I think it was just like $25 or $35 for, for the duration of the shoot. And we, we paid that a couple times, because of course we shot in 2004 and 2005, but it it really was amazing. And, and that wasn't per location either. That was to shoot in Seattle. And we would give them a list of our locations, and that 25 or $35 covered all the locations. So yeah, it, it, Seattle is a great city to make an independent production in. Um, we shot in some really fantastic places. We got permission by the owners of the Evergreen Washelli Cemetery um, up here in Seattle to, to shoot right in the cemetery. So that's where our opening scene is shot. And then we shot at a bunch of parks here in town, including um, well, Seward Park was the, the one that we shot the most at. And then um, there's a small park called Loman Beach Park, which was basically adjacent to the house that we rented where we, where we set most of the film. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, it was just it was so great to to be able to afford to be legitimate because it took a lot of the pressure off um, the casting crew where you know we knew that we had permission to be there, so we could just we were free to be creative and free to make the movie. Um, and, it, and it definitely came in handy when we had a visit from the police <laughs> one day when we were shooting in West Seattle. Um, we were shooting at the house where most of the film is set, but we were shooting down on the beach, and it was a scene where Gary um, orally services Officer Harding. Mm-hmm. And, and that was pretty deep into our shoot. That was probably like the sixth or seventh weekend. So um, by that point, we'd been pretty much ignored by most of the people who lived in West Seattle. You know, we were, we were shooting right down the hill from this very popular uh, walking and bicycle path. Um, and, you know, we thought maybe we would get a lot of looky-loos or people stopping and asking us what we were doing. But for some reason, people mostly um, were, were pretty cold. You know, they would just walk by or they'd, they'd roll their eyes because we were in their way or whatever. But nobody really seemed all that engaged. Like, nobody really cared or wanted to know what we were shooting. So at that point, we thought, well, they just don't care. They're pretty apathetic. <laughs> so, um, so we were shooting this, this blowjob scene on the beach, and um, and. We had, we had finished the scene, and we were going back up to the house when a police officer showed up and said that someone had called, called the police on us and said that we were shooting pornography. So it definitely helped that we had somebody in zombie makeup on the set, and we had a permit, and you know, we were making a legitimate film. So I, I definitely recommend, especially if you're, you're shooting in a place where, um, you know, where people are walking back and forth, or if you're shooting something that, if seen from afar, might be questionable, I would recommend getting a permit for sure. Uh, definitely, like wow! So it really helped, uh, you know, that uh, kind of a sort of semi-graphic scene could uh, <laughs> could seem. I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing if somebody were just looking outside, um, you know, outside their windows or whatever, and just saw you guys doing something, they'd be like, "Oh, wait." <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, nine one one. What's your emergency? <laughs> yeah, it definitely wasn't a family-friendly scene. But the thing is, is that we did have even even thinking that the people of West Seattle were pretty apathetic towards the production and probably wouldn't be paying attention. Even even knowing that, we did place members of the crew up on the road, basically blocking the production from view. So somebody really had to go out of their way to see what, what we were doing. So clearly, even though they were acting like they didn't care, people were taking note of what we were shooting, and on that particular day, taking note and calling the police. Um, So, yeah, well, I guess uh, that was another question that Squishy Cat was going to ask, is uh, did you have any problems with the local authorities? And uh, um, so... Yeah, that was that was definitely the that was the one visit that we had from the police, and we do talk about that actually on the DVD in one of the um, in one of the featurettes. It's called "The Long Arm of the Law," and basically, um, members of the cast and crew. Uh, give their recollections on that day. <laughs> well, I mean, it must have been kind of scary, too, when the cops come and you're like, uh-oh, what do we do? Like, uh, we actually had, uh, early on, I think it was our first weekend of shooting, we had um, an incident that was a lot scarier. And um, getting through that actually sort of gave me the, the confidence to think that I could get through anything. What happened that first weekend was... We were shooting at Seward Park. Um, it was Labor Day weekend, and I think it was like the Saturday of Labor Day weekend, or maybe the Sunday. And um, and you know it was it was a long day of shooting. We were shooting uh, the rest, the exit five rest stop scenes where Bobby, the uh, the no good boyfriend of Philip, goes off cruising for anonymous sex. And um, and it was getting darker and darker. 
And one of the things that was going on is that it was a pretty um, is a the park itself was pretty um, barely uh, populated. Like there there weren't that many people there that day, but there was um, a group of people who were in two cars and they had stopped next to our production. Uh, early in the day, and you know they're blasting their car radios and sort of hanging out. So I had one of my production assistants go up and just say, "Hey, we're shooting a film here. Do you mind turning your radio down?" And you know the people immediately said, "Oh, what kind of film are you shooting?" And she said, "A zombie movie." So that made them immediately curious. So they did turn down their radios to their credit. But what they ended up doing instead was they drove by the production over and over again to see if they could get a glimpse of what was going on. So every five minutes, or, and, and Seward Park is on this, this big loop. So basically, the, the road that was next to the, um, the little parking area that we were shooting at, um, it took you about four to five minutes to work your way all the way, all the way around the road and come back to our, our area again. So every four or five minutes, these two cars would go by, and we'd have to stop production, or we'd have to pause while they went by, and, and it was just getting really annoying. So I asked one of, my, um, one of my crew members to just basically stop traffic while we were shooting and then let them go when we had called cut. And the thing was is that if I felt like I was actually stopping, you know, many cars, I probably would have rethought that. That, But the thing was is that it was just these same two cars over and over again, and they knew what was going on. So if a crew member was just asking them to stop, I'm pretty sure they would have known, hey, we have to stop because this zombie movie is being shot. So that was working out pretty well, but then it started to get a little dark. And, um, and at one point, our crew member went out to stop the cars, and the first car stopped, but the second car didn't and rear-ended the first car and immediately they all get out and started screaming at the guy who was, who was stopping traffic and screaming, you know, where's the director and what's going on and we're going to call the police. Um, so basically everyone scattered. You know, we heard, we were, I was um, maybe about 30 or 40 feet away from the accident and was shooting, so I didn't realize anything had gone wrong until we heard this terrible screech of tires and this, this crash, and then our um, generator went out and all the lights went off. So, um, so I immediately rushed over to make sure that you know, nobody was injured, first of all, and then um, was immediately confronted by these, these big burly guys who were screaming and yelling and, and wanted to know who was responsible and, and who was going to pay for this and and I realized pretty quickly that they were drunk, which worked in our favor because what happened was I told them that I would be happy to give them our information, but that I wanted to call the police and um, that they would be able to, you know, make sense of what had happened. And I pretty much stuck to my guns. I said, you know, I, I feel much more comfortable getting the police involved. And, and they pretty quickly figured out that the police would take our side because of how drunk they were. So basically they picked up their fender, put it in their car, and drove off. And by the end of it, we're actually shaking my hand and wishing us luck on our production. So, you know, getting through that, and, you know, and, and after all that happened, and everyone was just sort of, everyone's breath was held. They were just waiting to see what was going to happen. I just turned around and said, and that's exactly how they do it in Hollywood. And, um, and it was, you know, it was this great bonding experience where we all sort of went through this horrible experience together, and we got through it. And it really did embolden us as a crew um, to, to feel like, okay, you know, if we got through that with no bloodshed, then we're good. So when the police arrived, probably like you know four or five weeks later, um, I really felt confident that you know we weren't doing anything wrong. We had a permit, and um, and I could handle it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Um. So, uh, oh, uh, LKD says you sent drunk drivers on their way. <laughs> okay, so maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to do, but I certainly wasn't going to ask them to stay on my set. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, uh, I, I wonder about that too. Huh? Maybe the local authorities will go, hey, wait a minute, let's listen to this podcast right here. <laughs> uh, well, I'm pretty sure Gianni, I have a couple questions. Uh, we're investigating, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, so I guess um, uh, let me look up some more questions. If anybody else has any more questions in the chat room or does want to call in, please uh, feel free to do that. Um, uh, I guess um, what's you know one of the big questions that a lot of people are wondering: What's next for you? What is next? I'm actually working on my next feature-length screenplay right now. It's a it, it's a little bit different than Creatures from the Pink Lagoon. It's still a comedy, but it's a gay screwball romantic comedy, um, and it's about sugar daddies and furries and lightning strike survivors. Hmm. And it's yeah, it's, it's definitely it's a departure, but it's still it's still got sort of my um, my goofy humor, and and it's definitely screwball. There's no horror elements to it. But um, but once again, I'm sort of I'm I'm going with a really big ensemble cast, and um, and just just sort of putting my own goofy spin on the screwball romance genre. They already want to know when are your auditions. Uh, just <laughs> need to finish the script first. Yeah, definitely let me finish the script. Although I do have to say that this time around, now that you know, now that I've done a feature and and um, and have worked with a. a good stable of actors. I'm definitely, you know, keeping certain people in mind when I'm writing these roles. And, uh, and you know, and, and I'll probably ask people to read because I just, I want to see sort of different combinations of people. But I, I definitely have some actors that I do like to use over and over again and, and have done so since Creatures with, um, with the short films that I made for Stiff as well. Oh, cool. Um, also, I, I forgot to look at this, um, uh, this question that apparently... Um, Let's see, uh, Boosie asked um, before uh, about uh, film festivals. Now, you've, you've had a lot of film, you know, I've had uh, the movie at a lot of film festivals. Uh, big, big question about the um, film festivals is, uh, you know, uh, do you go to all of them or have you only gone to a couple? Oh, God, I definitely didn't go to all of them. We played it, I think the, the final count was 32 film festivals. And, and were they community. in other countries, too, other than this one? There were a few in other countries. We um, we played in the Netherlands at Pink Film Days in Amsterdam. Um, we played in Poland at their first ever gay and lesbian film festival, which was called A Million Different Loves. We played in Tel Aviv, Israel. We played in uh, Colombia, in three different cities in Colombia, Medellin, Bogota, and Cali. And, um, gosh, oh, and we also played in Ireland. So yeah, we definitely have played at international festivals. I didn't go to any of the international festivals, but um, basically because the international ones don't have as much money as some of the some of the U.S. festivals do. And um, one of my criteria for um, deciding whether I was going to go to a festival or not is whether I could afford it or whether they could afford it. Because basically, if I couldn't afford to go, I I expected the festival to fly me out, and and quite a few did. So I ended up attending festivals in um, Boston and Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, San Diego, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, gosh, where else? Maybe that's it. But yeah, so I did, I, I, uh, and of course here in Seattle, um, attended a good handful of festivals, and it was always a fantastic experience. I loved being at the festivals, loved um, talking with the audience afterwards, loved, uh, and um, every chance that I get, I love sitting in and, um, and seeing the audience react, because it's, um, it's really educational. You know, it, it's been, 
a really great experience to um, to learn from audience reaction. Like, like I definitely know based on sitting in film festival audiences that there's a, a bit of time between jokes where you know we have the setup and there's definitely some funny things going on in the setup, and then we have this. Um, this short expanse of exposition where we're sort of we're um, introducing the characters and, and sort of letting people know what this movie is going to be about, and there aren't enough jokes in that expanse of time, and I know that now just from watching with film festival audiences because I can, you know, you can almost feel their um, their initial um, happiness with the film uh, seeping away as they as they're wondering, you know, when's the next joke going to be. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely great education. Uh, for screenwriting as well as for filmmaking because you really do realize, hey, I've got to make sure that I'm punching the humor up every, sing- every chance I can get and definitely don't want to go, you know, four or five pages without a good joke. In a comedy, that is, you know. In a, in yeah, a just in case uh, one of them doesn't work, then, you know, maybe the next one will, you know. Right. Um, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, a, a lot of people I know that uh, have done, like, uh, comedies or whatever, when they do them, uh, they don't want to make the people laugh the first, like, five to ten minutes, or at least not try to get it, like, really joke, joke, joke the first, you know, couple couple minutes because the audience is still trying to kind of, you know, get into the story. Right. What, what's your feeling on that? Do you want oh, to... Oh, I think... I, I actually think the exact opposite. And and that's that's something that I learned when I was in screenwriting class, is that if you want someone to keep reading your screenplay you've got to start with a bang. You know, you've got to put your best material on page one because you want them to think, God, I've got to keep reading this. This is, this is awesome. This is hilarious. This is thrilling. You know, you want them to, you want to, you want to catch them at the beginning and keep them hanging. You know, you definitely want to, um, to grab your audience. So I, you know, and, and I definitely try to do that with, um, there's, I, I think we probably do go maybe a minute before there's a joke in Creatures. And, and of course, the first big joke is the photo of Sebastian Camembert in his sailor cap and, and definitely looking sort of flamboyant. And, you know, and I love, I, I, I've done a lot of study of different types of humor, and I love that you can use, you know, a prop humor, a visual humor, or a punchline, or just, you know, someone, uh, a look that someone gives, or physical comedy, or screwball, or, you know, there are all these different ways to insert humor into your script and into your movie. Um, so, yeah, so you definitely want to let the audience know and let your reader know when you're in the screenplay stage that, um, that you know, you're, you're going to give them a good experience because you want them to stay involved. You want them to stay, you, you want them to keep watching or keep reading. But do you think uh, when, when it comes down to it, do you think that an audience might not be too ready for the humor, you know, or like when, they're first, when they first start watching it? Well, I you know if they're coming to if they're coming to a gay zombie comedy, I hope they're ready for humor. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and and certainly I've had people walk out. You know, um, we it's funny because our first festival, our first big festival was the Philadelphia International Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, and uh, we had two screenings, one on a Tuesday night and one on a Saturday night. And at both screenings, people walked out. And you know, and, and I come from a theater background, and I've definitely had. Um, bad audience experiences, and I've had great audience experiences. So I, I sort of know how to deal with that. But my co-producer, Peter Tor, was sort of new to this whole experience, you know, new to presenting his work to an audience, new to um, filmmaking. So he had never gone through that before, where he'd seen people, you know, that react that viscerally, where they were just, they were so fed up or so disgusted or it so wasn't what they wanted that they actually, you know, got up and walked out. 
So he was in this existential panic at the end of that festival, thinking, God, you know, maybe it's not as good as we think it is, or maybe it sucks, or maybe we shouldn't make films. Or, and, you know, and, and I had to sort of reassure him, and, and certainly it helps that our next festival experience was, you know, so much better, and, and, and since then we've had, you know, fantastic experiences at festivals. But um, for whatever reason, Philadelphia just was not buying what we were selling. So <laughs> it's unfortunate that Peter had to have that experience first. But, but you know, and, and that's the thing about Creatures from the Pink Lagoon is that, we we don't get a lot of people who are ambivalent about the movie. People either absolutely love it or they absolutely hate it. And either way, I actually appreciate that reaction because it means that they're engaged and they're reacting passionately about the film. So either way, go for it. You know, if you have to walk out, fantastic. If you're rolling in the aisles and clutching at your sides because you're laughing so hard, you know, that makes me happy too, for sure. Definitely. Um, well, I guess uh, if – let's see, let me see. we got a couple – Gosh, there's some more questions uh, coming up randomly. Excellent. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, your number one fans, uh, they, they want to let you know it's zombie folks, want to let you know that your number one fans on Cape Cod are staying up way past their bedtime. <laughs> oh, that's really nice to hear. Thanks, zombie folks. Uh, they're, they're so proud of you, Chris. And, uh, uh, and they, yeah, so uh, let's see. And then... Um, Jay, Jay Morin uh, wanted to ask if your new movie is going to be an East Coast production or a West Coast. Oh, good question, Jay Morin. Um, actually, at this stage, you know, I'm just I'm just writing the screenplay now. It it actually is set in Miami Beach in South Beach, but um, I'm sort of uh, I'm rethinking that for a couple of reasons. First, that it, it's a really ambitious script, and you know, just knowing the budget level that I'm that I that I'm probably going to be working at I should probably scale it down a little bit but also and and this is something that you know a lot of your listeners might not be aware of but Florida right now is sort of a hotbed of homophobia and I just I'm not really comfortable writing a story that um, that makes Florida seem anything but what it is so and you know and this is screwball romantic comedy so um, so it's it's definitely going to make Florida look good and um, I'm sort of rethinking that. So I actually have been, in the past few days, thinking that I might set the film um, on Cape Cod instead, which sort of kills a few birds with one stone. First of all, it's home for me. You know, it's, it's where I grew up, and it's where my, my parents and my sister live now. So, um, so it, would be, it, would be, it would be easy to, um, to make a film there, because I'd certainly have some resources at my disposal, but also, and, and this, this is really important for the same reason that it's important for me not to um, glamorize Florida, you know, Massachusetts is the home of gay marriage, and, um, and there's, at one point in the screenplay, there is a gay marriage, and, you know, initially I was thinking, oh, the characters would just fly from Florida to Cape Cod, but now I'm thinking, why, doesn't, why can't I set the entire thing in Cape Cod? So, all that said, um, you know, it, it's definitely going to be an East Coast set, film, whether it's actually shot on the East Coast or not, is, is all dependent on, you know, the vagaries of budget and, um, and shooting schedule. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why we could shoot on the East Coast, and there's a lot of reasons why we might not. So, it, at this point, it's, it's far too soon to say. Well, okay. Um, if there's no other questions, let me wait a second. If there's any other questions in the chat room, let me know. Uh, if not, uh, I guess we will uh, probably, you know, since there's no more callers, and oh, we do have another caller. Hold on, <laughs> just randomly comes on. So all right, hold on one second. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, caller. 
Chris, Chris, remember all those nights we spent together? How can you do this to me? Chris, admit it. Our love was something beautiful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not sure how to respond to that one. Oh, darling, darling, remember how we how we shared chocolate covered cold cuts by the light of the moon. <laughs> okay, so this caller clearly is well versed in um in the behind the scenes lore of creatures from the pink lagoon because um what we used for the um the flesh effects, like when a zombie was eating flesh, was uh deli turkey covered with chocolate sauce. So Clearly, this is an insider calling in and, and having a laugh at my. It head. is a person from your hometown, so or the the place that you're calling from now. That, oh, from Seattle, yeah. From Seattle, so. I I think I know who it is. Who do you who who do you think it is? I you better you better know who it is, buddy. All those nights when you held me in your strong arms and told me how much you loved me. <laughs> Well, that could certainly be any number of people, so you're not really <laughs> narrowing it down. <laughs> it's me, darling. It's me. I think I know who it is. Well, you do you want to do you want to say or not? Oh, sure, absolutely. She she not that she hasn't gotten enough mention on this show already. Oh, but listen, buddy. <laughs> it's the one Don't and only Jody James. She no. Of, she of the topless scene seventy eight. Oh, go ahead. Cheapen it. Cheapen our love in front of all these tens of people. <laughs> well, uh, she's also, I guess she's also been somebody who's been in the chat room. Yes, Jody is fantastic. She's, she, I think she's your um, your chatter Bootsy. Oh, maybe. That, I, I think that's, that's who, uh, that was her chat name. Jody is one of the, um, one of the, the people who I've used uh, in many of my films, and you know, I, I'm I'm very inspired by John Waters and his his um, ethos, where he he likes to he has this this core stable of actors that he calls the Dreamlanders, and um, you know, and he uses them in every single one of his films. And Jodie's appeared in three of my films now. She, in addition to being in Creatures from the Pink Lagoon, she's also in the short western that I did for Stiff, which is called Bob Hope's Miracle Cure for Incarceration. And she was in my sci-fi extravaganza that I made last year, Super Space Force. So uh, she's definitely, she's, she's a blast to have on the set. She's a great actress and, uh, and looks great topless. So I recommend her by all means. Listen here, buddy. Stop complimenting me or I really will show up at your doorstep expecting some real man love. <laughs> okay, then my lips are sealed. One, one night. It'll happen. Just you wait. <laughs> we'll see about that. Thanks for your call. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, Jody. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Well, see, there you go. You got somebody from the uh, actual movie calling in. She's fantastic. You know, my entire cast and crew, one thing that must be said is that I really try to run a happy set. Um, you know, I, I, as much as I want people to be serious craft, craftsmen and, you know, and, and really bring a professional touch to my productions, I also know that basically none of us are really getting paid for this. None of us are um, doing this as our primary 
employment. So, you know, you've got to make it a good time. You've got to feed people and you've got to make them happy. You've got to make them feel loved. One of the things, one of the traditions that, that we had on our set was at the end of each person's shooting day, um, we would basically announce that that person was done for the day and then there would be a round of applause for that person. And, you know, and it wasn't just like, you know, they were, it, it wasn't that they were done shooting for the entire production. It was just that they were going home for the day. And, you know, and it just, it got to be this great tradition where it, um, it sort of, it helped people feel appreciated and, and it, and it really helped me spread the love because I, I really do feel strongly that this is a very collaborative art and that I couldn't have done any of this without all the people who worked on this, this production. So kudos to Jody and kudos to everyone who was involved, whether you were one of my production assistants or slathered turkey on someone's body or squirted chocolate sauce on somebody or, you know, were in front of the camera um, acting some of these ridiculous lines that I asked you to, <laughs> to perform. So thank you to, to my casting crew. They're fantastic. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end this, uh, end this show. Tonight. All right. Uh, you thanking everybody for uh, for uh, doing it. So, uh, well, uh, and I want to thank you personally for coming on and everything, and having people uh, call in and uh, people listen and ask questions on the chat room. And yeah, thank you to everybody listening in the chat room and everything, uh, especially Steven Spielberg. If if you want to come on my show sometime, sure, give me a give me an email. <laughs> yeah, and if you're scouting me, I'm I'm definitely up for it. I'm for sale for sure. <laughs> Maybe for uh, Indiana, the next Indiana Jones movie. Hmm. Sure, I can I can handle that. Yeah, uh, yeah. The next Indiana Jones movie when uh you know, but you could make Indiana gay. You know, maybe that could be a pretty cool spin. That that's would what be he was a very up. interesting spin. He finds man love in the nursing home. I could I could do that movie. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, and um, we will definitely. Uh, We'll definitely keep checking up on you. Uh, let me know what's going on with your stuff, and I'll, I'll announce it on my show, like if you have any like announcements that you want me to tell people. Absolutely. I'll keep you posted, and uh, and I'll come back on the show when I have my next feature done. Definitely. If, if, yeah, yeah, definitely. If we're still doing this around, then I don't know. I don't know how much longer, you know, how, how much longer. You never know with these kind of shows. It's just, you know, kind of doing it for fun. So. All right, well. I'm, I'm hoping I, I we will. I hope you will as well, and I, and I hope big things for you, John. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, um, uh, yeah, I'll definitely keep checking up on you, dude. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody. That was Chris Biani, um, the director and co-writer of Creatures from the Pink Lagoon. Thank you uh, so much, everybody, for listening and um, and for the callers and everything. Uh, I think we had a really good show, and uh, I'm really excited about the stuff that people have learned in here. And uh, you guys can hit me up on MySpace at uh, myspace.com slash Jonathan Moody will rock you, or uh, you know, or any of my other ones that are on there. Um, uh, and also check out uh, the MySpace uh, creatures from the Pink Lagoon. Um, uh, my space out there and everything, and you guys can keep checking up on it. Go to Netflix and go to, um, as well as uh, Amazon.com, and you can check it out. Uh, thank you guys, and uh, hope everything. Uh, hope everybody had a great show. <laughs>